0: No, no,
1: Listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome to The Fear of God, Episode Six. I really enjoyed our conversation last week um and for those that was, of you who, that
0: got uh read uh sorry to cut you off that got pretty deep didn't it
1: was, it did uh and to be honest it got a little deeper than i was quite prepared for but um <laughs> but still
0: uh, but, but there I, will be an altar call at the end of the pot of this podcast <laughs> um you know and we will pass the plate at some point so yeah
1: yeah uh, and as of right now we're not uh, taking donations but who knows what's going to come there may be <laughs> there may be offering plates included who uh, who knows but uh sincerely I thought it was a I thought it was a really good conversation and uh, and I hope uh, you the listeners did as well and uh, for those of you who don't know the kind of conversations that we have on this show are um we look at horror films uh but not just films but horror literature and, um, uh, and just all aspects of the horror genre. And we approach it from a somewhat different perspective than is usually approached. And that's the perspective of faith and very specifically Christianity. Um, and having this conversation is, uh, is myself, of course, Reed Lackey. Uh,
0: and I am, is that my go?
1: Oh yeah. You could say your name if you wanted to. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> uh, I am Nathan Rouse,
1: And, uh, so yeah, we're happy that you're here. Happy that you're listening. And, uh, so yeah, Nathan, uh, coming off of last week's uh, sort of sort of heavier conversation, how you doing?
0: I'm good. All right, doing quite well. I I got to admit I haven't, other than um, you know what I referenced last week, I haven't really uh, I haven't really watched a whole lot or read a whole lot since then. Um, yeah. But you were telling me about you caught something that was just recently in theaters. Right? I did. Okay, so
1: we're. Uh your uh, listeners should be hearing this about September, but uh, we're recording this about July. I went to the theaters to see the shallows and it had gotten some positive reviews, mostly positive reviews, and uh, and then it was it was very impromptu. Just the my wife and I were out of town with family and, you know, s- very suddenly some friends were like, hey, let's go see the shallows. Let's go do it. And so we were like, "Oh, OK, you know, we have babysitting. Let's go ahead and go see the shallows. <laughs> I gotta say, I really enjoyed it. I really liked it a lot. Um, and I would even say, like, the biggest thing for me was the film promised me Blake Lively versus a shark. And the film gave me. Blake Lively versus a shark <laughs>
0: and um, it did so so what you would say is it wasn't very deep Well here's the thing you don't have to follow up on that it was really a stupid joke because no 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 I
1: I get it I get it because it's not deep it's the shallows <laughs> I get it
0: It's so funny and the best part is the best part is when Blake Lively turns to whoever or on her phone because I think you reference it. <laughs> her phone is a centerpiece of the movie and she just says I think we're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it felt a little forced, but it was in there and, uh, and, and kudos to them for, uh, for doing that. But I will, I will say in all sincerity, okay, I am not making a joke here. The Shallows is not a deep movie. It's not, because it's called The Shallows. I'm not making your joke here, but I will say this. There is a metaphor present in The Shallows that I think would be worth maybe some exploring. I don't know if we'll ever do an episode about it, but... Somebody out there. Well, I will say... ball and run with it. If you go over to morethanonelesson.com, uh, which is our our hosting site, Tyler Smith has written an article about shameless it. Shameless cross-promotion. Oh, shameless right cross-promotion. Absolutely. But Tyler Smith has written an article about The Shallows that I think is very interesting and provided a perspective that I didn't initially see, but now that he's... Provided this perspective, I can't think of really anything else when I think of the shallows. So you definitely should go and check that out. And you should go see the movie. I mean, I, I think the movie's worth your time. It's a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's short and, uh, and it gives you exactly what, uh, what you expect out of it. It's Blake Lively versus a shark. Um, but we're not here to talk about the shallows. Nope, we're not. We are here to talk about something, uh, much more nefarious much more dastardly would you oh wow (laughs) you're doing it (laughs) (laughs) much more what nathan go
0: ahead (laughs) um malevolent
1: malevolent yeah no there's another word that i'm looking for i can't quite (laughs) put my finger on it
0: i think the terrible joke you're building to is that we are talking today about scott derrickson's Sinister.
1: That's the one. Indeed, That's the one.
0: Indeed, we are. <laughs> what a what a lovely intro. I'm <laughs> sure Scott will appreciate that, uh, and that he's probably never heard it before. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure he's never heard that joke. S- so yeah, let's. I mean, we, we'll you know we we got Blake and her shark out of the way. Um, <laughs> we will we'll jump into the depths um, here and talk about jump over that shark. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we cut got all this out. That's fine. Um, so, yeah, let's jump into talking about Sinister and just quit with the aquatic puns. So I, you know, usually kind of our formatting, we're going to talk a little bit about the movie, just kind of how we responded to it on a pure kind of technical level, visceral level. Um, and then we'll kind of turn a corner and, and try to mine it for some of its deeper stuff that's going on. Uh, sort of like we did last week. And who knew? Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane was quite as rich uh, thematically as we ended up experiencing it. Exactly. Um, so in brief, Scott Derrickson, I, I don't know what your experience or what have you is with his work. I, I'm a big Scott fan, you know, to the point that I'm calling him by first name. <laughs> Even though, as I say that, I'm, look, I'm looking at his IMDb and there are pieces in it that I have not seen. But I have seen Sinister, Emily Rose, Deliver Us From Evil... Greatly looking forward to Doctor Strange, which oh, yeah. you know, will hopefully have his, his kind of flourish on the Marvel world. You know, and and what is interesting about Scott Derrickson in terms of our ongoing conversations is that Scott is a Christian. Yeah. And he is a very outspoken Christian. If you follow him on Twitter, I mean, you will see that um, there. I just Googled him and Christian or something like that. I don't know exactly what it was I Googled, but there's an interview with him from Christianity today about um, his film, Deliver Us from Evil. Um, which did you see that?
1: I actually didn't. I'm I'm embarrassed to say that Deliver Us from Evil is the only film of his I've not seen. I've seen all the rest on his standard mainstream filmography, but but um, I haven't yet caught Deliver Us from Evil. I need to.
0: Uh, at at risk of the possibility of him ever listening to this and getting offended, I didn't love it. Oh, I for me personally, I, I love Sinister, but but you know we referenced this in the, our very first episode. I am just a a, a avowed fan of the exorcism of Emily Rose.
1: We should talk about
0: Emily Rose like very soon. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. It has actually, I think, some some similar construct to Even Devil that we talked about weeks ago just in terms of morality play, very strict kind of parameters the story is operating in, but really does what it does very well and was scary as hell. Yeah. Frankly. But specifically with Sinister... I remember when it was coming out, I didn't know uh, exactly what my feelings were on seeing it or not, because I did see the trailer and the trailer was terrifying, but ultimately I'm a sucker uh, for a good <laughs> scare. So did go with some buddies to see it. Um, did rewatch it for our conversation today, but sinister read is a freaking scary movie. Yes. I and mean, there's just no kind of sugarcoat <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, I, I think there's a lot that's just kind of interesting about it. I mean, it, uh, kind of a note I took was just that it was, it seems to be, if I had to guess, one of Scott Derrickson's most personal films. Hmm. Um, you know, it's very much this sort of, um, we talk about Stephen King a lot. Stephen King often writes about writers.
1: Um, right, right.
0: Uh, Scott Derrickson in this story is writing about and directing a movie about uh, a writer. Yes, but really kind of an artist engaging horror material. Mm hmm. You know, and I think that was a really fascinating kind of meta sort of narrative happening there. So, you know, in terms of just uh, very surface things I liked, um, I think I would, the first thing I would say was Ethan and the second thing I would say is Hawk. Hmm. Um, you know, he's just, he's just stinking great in this movie. You know, what, 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 what are your thoughts? What are some, what are some things that jumped out at you? Well,
1: I completely agree. I have such a soft spot in my heart for Ethan Hawk. I think he, even when he is in, movies that I don't care for really at all. I enjoy watching him so much. And he, he's at his A game in Sinister. I really enjoy his performance. Sinister, I would say, and I, I haven't, you know, I haven't really unpacked this tremendously, but I've given it a decent degree of thought. And I think Sinister well deserves a place in the top 10 best horror films of the last decade. Like going back to 2005 or 2006 to now, if you were going to make a top ten best horror films, most noteworthy horror films, uh, I think Sinister deserves its place. Um, it is very effective. I saw it foolishly by myself <laughs> one evening <laughs> while my wife was out of town. My wife and son were out of town, and I saw it completely by myself. That was a mistake, and um, it, it it was very effective to me. And then I've I've seen it a few times since then, um, and I enjoy it every time I see it, even knowing what's coming, uh, knowing what the what the destination is. We had a long conversation about Journey versus Destination, and this, this movie has uh-huh. an intense and incredible destination. Even knowing it, I'm still uh, very affected by it. And I, I still... Th- the things that are going on in this film still resonate very strongly with me. I do not know yet, because I have not seen enough to determine just exactly how consistently strong Scott Derrickson is as a director, but he has now got at least two films under his belt that I think are very, very effective. I think Emily Rose is very effective, and I think it Sinister is undeniably very,
0: very effective. You know, you say that, like, I haven't seen this, but my understanding is his The Day the Earth Stood Still is actually decent. I mean, I think at the time it came out, I just didn't have an interest in it. I may have not even known he had a hand in it at the time, but um, I do think it uh, has its fans. The talking about the destination. So I watched it when I, on my rewatch with a buddy who had not seen it before. Ah. And that is a fun experience. This (laughs) this friend of mine was at the very, or at certain parts late in the movie, I can't remember exactly what the scene would have been, but like he was, we were, my wife was out of town, sort of same situation you described. We were watching this movie, lights were off. He's standing with his hands on his head. Like (laughs) like that sort of, (laughs) that sort of level of anxiety happening. Um, so that was a very fun part of the experience and specifically in terms of the destination being the ending of the movie, I know what happens at the very end in terms of, I don't mean just the story, but the bagul, if you will, jumping out at the end, right? Right, Yes. Very last shot. I knew that was coming and I did not watch it. (laughs) Like I just knew I was already so well, it should be mentioned that I watched to refresh myself for our podcasts I watched The Conjuring and Sinister in one night. Wow. Um, and that's, that's a lot. Wow. That's a lot to absorb. That's a lot
1: for me. I mean, like, I consider myself a seasoned <laughs> horror fan and I, I would be in such tremendous dire straits if I had me- watched that double feature.
0: <laughs> yeah, I did it. And, um, you know, uh, I survived. And, but, <laughs> but knowing, so Sinister was second and just, I, I don't know, it was at the, that that moment of the night where I was like, I think I'm done, and so I did not watch. I did not watch that very last shot, but <laughs> I did watch my buddy watch it, and that was fun. <laughs> so let's. Th- this is an easy transition into. Uh, I think we actually may have abandoned it last week for um, Cloverfield, but uh, definitely talk about some with Devil and the Conjuring's. But so sinister. Um, when we're talking scary scenes in movies, the gloves are off. And, um, this movie is just, just overflowing with these moments. And a couple I want to touch on, want to hear your, um, if you, if you have a couple bullets to discuss. Um, I do. I think one that is probably the most sustained moment in the movie for me is (laughs) it's freaking me out thinking about it. Oh boy. When he is, traipsing through the house in the middle of the freaking night and the little ghost kids are frolicking all around him. Good lord! And there's a scene, what, what makes it so effective is he's not, he's not cognizant of them at all. Like, you know, you, the viewer and there it's, it's, it's low light. They're kind of in blue light, very terrifying. And there's a moment where he walks towards the camera and it kind of pans a bit to his side with the, the dining room table or whatever right next to him. And there's this little girl with this ghastly, it's not, it's not, you know, hacker slasher sort of ghastly, but it's just ghost esque. Uh, and she fills the frame and is staring dead at him and he's not seeing her at all. And it just holds it for like 10 seconds or so. And man, that is terrifying. No, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a bunch of moments like that. Um, but what, what was one for you? Reed?
1: Well, the biggest, the biggest one for me, I literally, Cannot think of this movie without thinking of this very specific moment. Every single time the movie comes into my mind, because I had such, it is the moment, as again, I said, the first time I saw it, I was at home. I am a certifiable idiot, because when I am home alone, with no friends or family in the building with me, I will still turn the lights off to watch a scary movie. And there was a moment that made me turn the lights on. And and <laughs> it was when he's watching, you know, for those of you who, have of course, seen the movie, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, spoilers aplenty in this in this conversation. Sure. But for those of you who have seen the movie, as you know, he's watching a number of home videos and, you know, he, he sees several of them. They're all pretty Man. disturbing. They're all pretty rough. But I'm sitting there watching him. He stumbles upon one. <laughs> that is called uh, lawn work or something oh, and, man. And That's so bad. and he's watching it and i'm i'm sitting there watching it with him and like okay i know something scary is about to happen but when that scary thing happened those lights turned on so fast <laughs> i was i was done at that point i was like okay now i'm now i'm really just wanting <laughs> wanting to build up some mental defenses here cuz this is getting to me uh, so that was one so that that yeah that is a uh,
0: undeniable and, uh, and talking about Ethan Hawke and his performance, that scene you're referencing is one of those moments where it's like, oh, man, he is so good. Um, he reminds me a lot of uh, a thought I had. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to equate these two actors necessarily if you dislike one or the other. But um, Colin Farrell years ago when he was a bit more present, mm. um, you know, and, and even sort of Tom Cruise to a bit that like they aren't the Daniel Day-Lewises of the world, but they're so good living in the world of the film. Oh, I agree with that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, um, and and that particular moment was so powerful for me because of that reason. I mean, his reaction to the lawnmower scene is like—it's hard to believe it's not natural. Yeah, it's so yeah. legit. You know, the other—I uh, feel like the kid in the box. Um, I thought it was an SNL joke there, but um, <laughs> I feel like that scene got a little overplayed in the teasers or in the trailers and stuff. But yeah, um, so that one doesn't affect me quite as much. But I will say. The scene, the other scene that really is quite terrifying, the, the, the final sort of run, the final sequence is pretty terrifying in, in terms of just an extended sequence. Oh, yes, it is. But when he is, when he has ascended the attic and sees the, ch- oh, golly, Ooh, <laughs> sees the children, you know? Yeah. And they're watching the movie and he backs away and Bagul pops out and scares everybody out of their friggin' minds. Yeah. Oh, my
1: God. Yep. That's. Oh my gosh. Well, well on that note. this film does a couple of things <laughs> really well. We've just referenced three very effective, essential, essentially jump scares. And I think that at the risk of transitioning a little bit, I think that horror films fall into one of three categories. They fall into the films that are laced to the hilt with jump scares. And that's really all there is to it is a bunch of startle moments. There are films that uh, I would throw the recent The Witch into this category that really have no jump scares but a ton of sustained tension and just, you know, sustained nerve-wracking just suspense. Um, sinister, I think, is the third category. It has a decent chunk of both. I think there's plenty of good effective jump scares, but there's lots of scenes that Derrickson's a skillful enough director to just let breathe and let... Uh, I think con, I think both of the conjuring films fall into that third category where there's a lot of good sustained tension, but then there's a few really effective jump scares. And I think sinister part of why I consider it among the greatest of the last few years is because I think it, it does both so effectively. It keeps the suspense mounting, but then <laughs> it has definitely got the ability to make you leap right off the couch. Into the you know jam your head into the ceiling, because uh, it is it
0: is very very frightening on both fronts. Yes, <laughs> <I> totally agree. <laughs> I mean, oh man. Yeah. Uh, we can stop. T- we can stop talking. About this movie. We can be done. Can we wrap this one up? <laughs> yes, it's true. Well,
1: I will say this. So, so one of the things that I think, and maybe this is you know maybe this is partially a, a transition into some of the some of the theme that I think is going, but there was something there was something inherent. In the plot of this movie, in the narrative of this movie, that I don't know if I have ever seen in another horror film. I may be wrong, and maybe listeners can correct me if there's another film that they can think of that does this in this way. But bear with me for a second. One of the things that, um, and and the film Scream calls attention to this a great deal. Uh, horror movies for generations, people have been yelling at the screen: "Don't, don't, don't go in there." Don't don't leave. Turn around. Do you know, they've been yelling at the stupidity of the characters on screen for their continued persistence to put themselves in outrageously dangerous situations, just foolishly dangerous situations. And horror films have had that inherent in their makeup for a very, very long time. What Sinister does towards the climactic point of its narrative is, I think, a really bold choice, and for that film, a very effective choice. And this might be a transition into some, you know, some of kind of the themes that I think it's striking at. Because Ethan Hawke, its character, is so stubborn about wanting, you know, his, his new book to be published he's wanting the new book that he's writing he's placed his family in danger he's placed himself in danger and even when he begins to see evidence of that very inherent danger and has that confirmed to him by a demonologist at a university he still is is pretty stubborn about seeing this through to the end but there comes a point i think it might even be the point right after immediately following the moment you just referenced with the kids in the attic where he makes a decision. He says, we're, we're leaving. We're calling it a day. We're done. We're backing out. Right. We are, uh, we, we are through with the horror house. We are gone. We are done. And he packs up his family and he leaves and he retreats. And in the narrative of Sinister, that is exactly the worst thing he possibly could have done. It's the thing that we, as the horror film, you know, we would say, like, I would never have even moved into that house, but at the very least, when stuff starts to go wrong, I would move out of it as quickly as I possibly could. Which, sure. when he does that, seals the deal. That is what, yeah, that's what ultimately resigns him to this uh, inevitable fate of becoming a victim to the same exact thing he's been studying. I found that incredibly interesting. Do you have Do you have any specific thoughts about about that kind of idea?
0: Um, no, I mean, I, I think that's a, a a sort of incisive look in terms of just. But, but I think something you're scratching up against too, and I feel like It Follows did this. The movie It Follows, oh, yeah. which maybe we'll get around to at some point, um, did something similar. But you know, th- this sort of very meta textual assessment and analysis of just horror as a genre. And in fact, one of the things I wrote down is it feels like this movie is asking us, "Why do we watch horrific things?"
1: Mm, yeah,
0: you know, not not even as a "Hey, you idiot, why are you doing this," but just as in a "What." propels us to do that what compels us to do that and and you know this that's the exact conversation you and i've been having for weeks now but you know i do think there's very much a layer of that happening you know in your point about the the one thing you as a viewer would say to that character in terms of get out is actually the thing that steers him directly into his his dreadful fate yeah you know something that was interesting to me too, that really, and, and this was kind of a personal resonance. I think, I think it will probably uh, strike a chord with you too, but there was something really interesting for, for listeners who would have no reason to know this. I mean, I've, both you and I have a degree in theater. I, I've produced theater, directed theater, sort of been on the stage uh, various times over the years, have written this and that, dabbled in artistic expressions is the point I'm trying to make. And so there was a really interesting conversation this movie was having about what I wrote down was the legacy of art versus the legacy of family. Mm. And there's this really kind of interesting slash convicting slash make you think about things moment that happens between he and the wife oh, you know, in the bedroom. Yes. The scene. I love that scene. Oh, I think it's. Yeah, I think it's after they discover. Oh, this is when he confesses. Yeah. she discovers that (laughs) That terrible that terrible moment early in the movie when she says did we move in next door to them and you watch him consider the question and he says no and leaves yeah and you're like oh brother you've done it yeah um and so then you know that scene when he finally confesses well i answered correctly which is the absolute worst thing to ever say to your wife when you're when you're in a conversation about who said exactly. what and the meaning the the meaning of the things you said um so i think there's just a really interesting uh sort of conversation the movie is having about that that notion and, and how do you and like i said it really struck a chord with me had a lot of resonance of how do you as a person with an artistic sort of spirit how do you how do you make room for that when you have actual other responsibilities, too? So I, I know it's not like a that's not really a faith laden sort of conversation per se, although perhaps um, tending to the things you need to tend to as a mature adult. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I was really drawn to that sort of conversation the movie was having with itself about that particular topic. I think that's a,
1: I, I think that's very astute and it's, it's something that I hadn't really thought of until you, until you mentioned it. But, but I think it's very present in the film. And I, I like the way you put it, this idea of the legacy of family versus the legacy of art. Uh, the, the single quote that I wrote down to potentially talk about is there's a moment where he's watching because Ethan Hawke's character um was kind of for the literary world a one hit wonder. He wrote a novel or well it it was a true crime novel, so it's kind of nonfiction uh but still narratively based, called Kentucky Blood. And all we know about the inside the movie Sinister, all we know about the Kentucky Blood story is that it was a true uh sequence of murders that Ethan Hawke as kind of reporter slash writer published a book about, and there's some divisive opinions about his journalistic tactics and about the information he presented in that book, uh, but it was a runaway bestseller, and it made him very popular and very famous. And there's a moment where he's watching a video of an interview that he did um, to promote Kentucky Blood, and the interviewer, the anchor, says to him, so ultimately what feels better, seeing justice done or seeing your book, Kentucky Blood, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And Ethan Hawke's character, Ellison, says back to him, Oh, the justice feels better, without question. I'd rather cut off my hands than write a book for fame or money. And it's ironic that he's watching this because at the point that we see that he's seeing this, we know he's dragged his family into this because he's trying to recapture some of that former glory, some of that former legacy, sure. he's trying to he tells his daughter, um, you know, she says, are you going to write a book so that we can move again? And he's and, and he says something to the effect. I didn't write this quote down, but he says something to the effect of I'm going to write the greatest book that anybody's ever read. You know, like I'm I'm going sure. to write the best thing possible. So he is absolutely chasing this this legacy of I'm a writer. This is what I do. I'm not just going to be some one-hit wonder. I had Kentucky blood, but I'm not just gonna gonna do this. And to get to that horrific final sequence, the last words he hears—and ugh, gives me chills just thinking about it—the last words he hears before his character again, spoiler alert, we warned you—but before his character is uh, is killed very violently. Uh, the last thing that he hears is his daughter say to him, I'm going to make you famous again, daddy, which means <laughs> he's going to get exactly yeah. what he exactly what he set out to get. And when he chose his family over this this other thing, tragically, horrifically, it was simply too late. And uh, and that yeah. is scary if I've ever talked about a scary thing. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting you bring that up because I think as you were talking and I, I thought about this a few minutes ago, like that scene we referenced between he and the wife in the bedroom, once he finally confesses this, this terrible you know, thing he's concealed. And actually, this might not be specifically that scene, but it's one of the scenes between them. And it's, it's honestly just a really lovely moment um, where she says to him. And again, what I wrote was, "This is the plague of the artist." You know, this is this is sort of what you know kind of wrestle with. Um, and she says, "When when you're happy, we're all happy." And I thought that was a really powerful powerful moment for the statement the movie's trying to make about living present with your own family, mm, um, and with, yeah. with with you know talking about that notion of legacy. And it's interesting because. As, as I consider the broader sort of idea of this movie, like Ethan Hawke is our, our protagonist, but he's a selfish SOB, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, he like, like there's nothing we, we like him because we like Ethan Hawke and, and he's the one that we empathize with because he's encountering all these sinister, uh, elements <laughs> that he's witnessing. Yeah. But he can't stop. And and it's interesting, you know. They, I mean, gosh, the the metaphor of alcoholism comes up multiple times in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And this notion that he has become addicted to, you know, maybe you could call it fame. At the least, it's chasing fame, um, and just cannot uh, kind of, you know, take his hand out of the fire. And it is what it's what executes his family. Is yes. his selfishness? Yeah. You know, and so there's a really fascinating sort of conversation, sort of tension that the movie's aiming for. That I think where it settles is (laughs) you probably, you probably, when you were heading to this house, just should have gotten off at a different exit and gone somewhere else.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and what a, uh, not intending to backpedal here, but I just didn't reference it earlier when we were talking about the technical aspects of it. Um, What a, a great and effective opening shot of that, of that movie. And not only is it, cause the I tree? usually, that, the tree. Yeah. yeah. And I usually get so annoyed when, sh- when opening shots like kind of establish something from a, from a different time period. I say different because it, whether it's past or future, I tend to be kind of frustrated by those kind of things. Just send me into the story. That's just a personal preference. I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice. Mm-hmm. Just personal preference. I say just send me into the story, but I really liked it in Sinister. Because you see that opening shot. It is very creepy. It's very effective. And then when he looks out the window and you see that it's the same tree, the very distinctive same tree, um, that is, that is when I knew definitively this guy is already lost. Like he, wow. like he's, yeah. he's already, I didn't know if the film was going to have a happy ending or not. It, it, it clearly doesn't. But at that point, I already knew. Whether whether this film has a kind of an upbeat or not, this this guy is already he's already done <laughs> like this is already over for him because he's already chosen to take his family into this 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 horror show. So, yeah, I, I definitely resonated with with a great deal of that, too. Well, and there's, you know, uh, y- you mentioned earlier, it might not particularly be a matter of faith per se but there was a particular scripture verse a proverb that I think of uh, thunk did you hear me just do that um, I did. Wow, <laughs> that, was, uh,
0: that was wow. Thought of is the <laughs> word <laughs> that I was looking for. I don't know if you're just trying to keep all of us on our toes or what. Wow, yeah, that was, uh, that, was uh, that
1: was interesting. That was uh, unexpected, but um, but we'll leave it in because it's there. Um, but uh, the 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 scripture verse that I thought of when uh, when thinking about this film was from Proverbs uh, chapter twenty nine and verse one, and it is direct. And it is uh, blunt. It simply says, uh, in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1, it says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Uh, and I can think of wow. fewer, more terrifying ideas than that our own stubbornness can lead us to a place to where the danger and the threat that we're toying with, as it were, are, are beyond recovery. That there, that there, that there is a, I mean, this, that's probably a broader conversation than we want to have, but that notion, uh, whether people believe in it or not, that there could possibly be a place beyond healing is terrifying in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, uh, in Dante's Inferno, that's what's posted, uh, not those words, but what's posted above the door in the entrance to hell is abandon hope, all you who enter here. Like that notion, like if you enter here, just forget hope, like abandon it because That's it's over. Right. Um, and that is just a terrifying idea. It's, a, it's an absolutely just horrifying notion that there could be any place. And we enter in when we do grow at our most stubborn. I know I do this, that if I'm really set on a particular course or a particular path, I'm likely to feel as if there is no such place. I will be able to fix this. Sure. I'll be yeah. able to get out of this. I'll be able to correct the ship. I'll be able to, to steer it. And, uh, and the fact is sometimes, as we mentioned earlier about his, his decision that uh, sometimes by the time you come to the place where you make the right decision, by the time you come to the place where you're doing the right thing, uh, maybe it's too late at that point. Maybe the consequences are already too far along and the train is too far down the tracks. For you to reverse and for you to uh, to recover and, from
0: it, and then this is where we lay in DC talks, which we'd all been ready. <laughs> is that what we're
1: going for? Here? Oh boy,
0: not a, not that kind of a podcast. Definite Maudlin, definite Maudlin turn there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man,
1: but here's okay. So here's the thing: since since we're since we're going there.
0: So, uh you mean since you've led us there. I
1: you've yeah, led there. I did. I let us there and now there's no turning back as a matter of fact because <laughs> <laughs> because I was too stubborn about. It. Um yeah, I I want to get off the boat. <laughs> I'm going to hang up. <laughs> we're 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 too far uh, too far out out from the shore. But um yep. The the since we're going there, that is something that I think Christians in general, definitely preachers, but I think Christians deal in one of either of those extremes, they're either going to and I'm before I make the statement, this is an area which I would. It's already begun. I, so. Well, I know. I know. But before I make the definitive statement I'm leading to, I should hedge a bit that this is one of those subjects about which I'm going to I'm going to probably position myself a bit more centrist and a bit more uh, in the middle and nuanced, because most of the time ministers are going to express the extreme of nothing is beyond redemption, or they're going to express the exact opposite of that, to where you you'd better tow this very specific line very consistently, mm-hmm. or you are right. automatically beyond redemption. Like you're done. Like the, as, as if there is no uh, as as if there is no place to um, to be able to recover. From these kind of things. And I feel, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I feel like the ministers I've heard growing up and even in my life now tend to land in one of those two camps of, you know, there is always a way out or there is not a way out at all. And um, I don't find a lot of nuance to the conversation about, hey, actions have consequences. They have real, tangible, practical consequences. But in the midst of those consequences, there is the possibility of redemption. There is the possibility of recovery. I don't know if that's been your experience or not.
0: Um, you know, uh, I think that your uh, sort of life experience has, has exposed you to a lot more of just a variety of, of some of those approaches that, that I might not have been privy to. Um, you know, I've got a much more limited sort of pool to, to access for that. You know, it does make me think, even of our conversation. It, it's interesting that this keeps coming back, but about Devil, um, the movie Devil, yeah. And just, you know, that there that there can and might should be natural consequences for for natural actions. Um, but you know, I, I personally think, if ever evolved into this in life, would preach that 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 there is no. Too far. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Without, without, without redemption that can still be available. Um, though again, you know, I mean, if, if I accidentally step on a nail, um, that nail is going to go through my foot. That's just a natural consequence of that action. I kind of believe in that, uh, clearly. But so I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there are ways in which nuance maybe should be present on a certain part of that conversation. I think there are also ways in which you know, I guess just depending on your, uh, personal experience and sort of theological, uh, toolbox that, that maybe there isn't a whole lot of nuance and, and, and the rightness or wrongness of that is really more determined by, okay, well, how does this cause you to love the people around you? Right, right. You know, and, and even yourself. You know, I think that's, I mean, you know, scripturally, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I mean, I think those are, Big deals. So, yeah, in terms of the conversation of are there bridges too far or do we feel like that's um, put forth by the church? I, I think in this ongoing conversation that naturally invokes talks about the horror genre and the church, I think we talked about this months ago at this point, but the the fear notion that can be cultivated from the church sector. Right. Right. Has a lot to do with exactly what you're talking about. Like, well, oh, you done did it now. You know, you gone you've gone too far. Yeah. As long as as long as you can keep people afraid of quote unquote going too far, they'll toe the line for you.
1: Uh, it's true. And I, I I apologize if I'm cutting you off, but to insert some some validity there, um the uh <laughs> and and not that you weren't being valid. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. But no, just to I, affirm that it. came through loud and clear. <laughs> I apologize, but I but like, just to affirm what you're saying that like you're good. I grew up in a culture. I am not exaggerating. I grew up in a culture where multiple people said specifically that you should never, you know, have a dirty thought or say a curse word because if the rapture takes place at that moment, you will not go. I mean, it was that extreme that was the that was the climate under under which i grew up and under which to a large degree uh, my parents very specifically my mother grew up uh under this notion of if you do these things then you you are going to very very rapidly reach a place beyond redemption and they they spoke about it in terms that positioned salvation as very difficult to obtain very difficult to achieve. Sure. And again, I, it's very important to me at the risk of sort of hedging too much that on this show, you and I are kind of exploring these ideas. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to posit a specific lecture on theological discourse, even in subjects as broad as this, but I do have my opinions and I do have my perspective on it. And one of the things that I do firmly believe to the degree that it is beyond belief and more in the realm of like a a firm conviction, is that light is more powerful than dark. And that sure. if, if there is any hope whatsoever to the gospel story, it is that it is a free gift, freely given, and that it is something where we do not have to maintain a certain degree of, of works-based standard. And the kind of behavioral modification that tends to take place in religious circles, I find a large majority of it, if not all of it, to be very counterproductive and detrimental. Um, that's not to say that everything we do is good. Clearly, particularly in some of the stuff that we discussed in last week's episode, people are capable of doing terrible things. And they do those terrible things, they commit those horrendous evils on a daily basis. And some of those people commit them multiple times every day. It is absolutely possible for us to do horrendously hellish things. But that having been said, I again believe that the gospel story presents a story where light has defeated the darkness and light is greater than darkness. And that in the light that you, you those things remove themselves. You, you begin to move away from fear. You begin to move away from evil. You begin to move away from the, the hatred and the, the sinful things that so saturated you and you begin to press forward towards something that is, is beyond all of that. And, uh, and I think that there's a film that I love. It's not a horror film, um, but I think it's a film that almost everybody should see. It's a film from 2014 called Calvary, starring, um, an actor. Oh, Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, Brendan Gleason. I cannot uh express how deeply i love that movie while i would not say it was the best in this category i think it might be my favorite film of the last 10 to 15 years um it affected me that deeply. Wow. um you know i'm not saying that it's the the best made but just in terms of what it spoke to within me it's it's might be my favorite but he says something in that film towards the end of it and this is not a spoiler to the plot but he says he says, I think we spend too much time talking about sins and not enough time talking about virtues, to which the character that he's speaking to says, what virtue would you focus on? And he very simply says, in a in a moment that makes me very emotional to remember it in the context of the story, he says, I think forgiveness has been horribly underrated. And it is uh, it's powerful when it's said because of the context of what's happening in the story about it, but I could not be... I could not believe in that more, Nathan, that I think we don't talk yeah. enough about forgiveness. We don't talk enough about grace. We don't talk enough about this, this pocket of redemption. Instead, we position ourselves, and this is kind of, it's ironic to me that we're having this discussion because it's kind of the anti-sinister message. Because the message of sinister, as we've already kind of established, can be sometimes you can go too far and sometimes there's no, there's no escape. But I think, That when we look at that horror and then take a step back and look at what we truly believe, I think there is so much value we couldn't even calculate it in recognizing, no, you know what, we need to present. We Our language should revolve around forgiveness. Our language should revolve around grace. Scripture calls us ambassadors of reconciliation. And that those terms are very important to me that as if we are representatives of how to recover the rift and how to repair the damage, not reinforcing it, widening it, m- causing more destructive things to happen in the lives of people, but reaching out to people with hope and with forgiveness and with grace and with faith. And of course, with the greatest of all of them, love.
0: So yeah, I told you, I told you we were going to. End with a altar call. <laughs> maybe we, maybe we should. I mean, you know, oh, maybe it's time should. to uh, cue the organist. Yes, exactly. And you know, uh. if the ushers will come down.
1: <laughs> well, and uh, and and I, d- I will say that uh, you know if you, unless you had something burning to say, I think that 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 probably is the note we should uh, we should end on. Um, and, uh, it's funny to me because I think this episode has been, uh, a bit more, uh, lighthearted or vibrant than we, <laughs> than we tend to be. But that's what happens when you watch something really, really scary is you have to kind of laugh a lot of it off. Um, yes. but, uh, Sinister is definitely a, it, it's, it's a scary film. I mean, I, I, I think it is a, a very, very effective, frightening film. I think for fans of the horror genre, if you have not seen it, please see it. It is, uh, it is a very good movie that I think is well worth your time. Uh, we've spoiled a lot of it if you haven't already seen it, but well, that's uh, our job yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and we'd love to know some more of your thoughts on this idea of of uh, the places beyond redemption if they if they even exist um, so there's a number of ways to reach out to us we've already talked about more than one lesson. com you can comment there. probably the easiest way to reach out to us however, is through Twitter and Nathan what's our Twitter handle? It would be at. The fear of God at the fear of God. And there's a link to Facebook on there. You can talk to us there and you can like, uh, like us on Facebook. You can also email us fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word fearofgodpodcast of God podcast at gmail.com. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at read lackey. Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? Besides
0: the fear of God, that would be at the Nathan Ralph. Wonderful.
1: Now, This is normally where we would say goodbye, but I want to uh, set something up really quick. We're recording this in July, as I'd already mentioned, but as you are hearing this, it's uh, about to be October, and uh, naturally, when you have a podcast about horror films, uh, October is a very important month. (laughs) It's a very big month, because that's when that's when Halloween falls. We're going to be doing something a bit different every October. Um, We're still going to be talking about uh, the horror genre, but... We're going to take the opportunity uh, in the four weeks uh, next month to look at the profile of a specific artist. And uh, and I thought personally there would be no more fitting artist to look at in our very first halloween together than the director of the original halloween none other than john carpenter himself so starting next week we're going to be still talking in very much the same way but specifically looking at the career of john carpenter and in the month of october we're going to be covering the fog they live the thing and halloween four films that i think are all excellent um two of which are largely
0: well it's funny it's funny um reed i i've All that we've watched except Conjuring 2, which again, bearing in mind the time difference of recording to Publication I saw in the theater um, I had seen before oh. of, these, of these the only one I've seen is Halloween. Oh, you're in for a treat! So that'll be kind of a fun.
1: That's uh, yeah. This is this is really good. I mean, honestly, I think all four of these films are great to to uh, to masterpieces. There are two films in this list, and we'll mention this next week again. But uh, John Carpenter has the unique distinction of being the only director to consistently have two films in most top 10 all-time best horror films uh, ever, Uh, and that's The Thing and Halloween. Those two films consistently make it in the top, uh, considered two of the best horror films ever made, and he's the only director of that kind to have two films in that list. So I'm very excited to talk about him and about his work. Um, But uh, as always, Nathan, thank you so much uh, for being part of this conversation.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening.
1: Yeah. And as we say every episode, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. You, You know how to reach us. Let us hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. And until next time, be well, don't be too scared, and keep in touch.
0: Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast, where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of tracermatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review.